Datanauts touch down on planet VX land. There we dig a series of twisty tunnels that are dark and all alike. Will we escape the tunnels and find our way out to the internet universe? Stay tuned to find out. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the airplane-weary Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who might know more three-letter airport codes off the top of his head than any other person I know. And joining us to chat about VXLAN is a Swiss who doesn't like chocolate but lives in Chocolate Street, Lucas Kratiger. Lucas has been a guest on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network before, but this episode marks his first appearance with the Datanauts. Welcome, Lucas. And in full disclosure, Lucas, you uh, you work for Cisco, right? Do do important things for them there? Yes. Uh, hi, Ethan. Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me today. Yep, working at Cisco for, for quite some time, back in the mothership at San Jose. Enjoying the nice and calm winter weather with somewhere in the 40s, 50s, or even 60s. Yeah, <laughs> okay. very nice and comfy. <laughs> and just so you're listening, you're going, oh, is this a show sponsored by Cisco? It is not. Lucas is just a friend of the show. We've known him for a long time, and he agreed to come on and give us some discussion of VXLAN. Is it something he's very knowledgeable about? Lucas, I, I want you to explain VXLAN at a high level to uh, – let's assume your audience are technical, smart people because they are, but maybe they're not networkers. So if they're not networking people, they've maybe not heard of VXLAN before. H- how would you describe it to them? All right. So v- VXLAN is is written in two ways. And uh, one part is with a capital X and the other one is with a lowercase x and the lowercase x means the VLAN is not so extensible, while the capital X means it's more extensible. So, uh, <laughs> sorry for the bad joke, but uh, VXLAN <laughs> is extensible way of layer two extensions and uh, layer two bridging and all of this good stuff we do in the networking Ethernet for a long time. But in fact, what it is, it's it's a data plane encapsulation. It's it's putting something on top of something. Uh, if you want, in more general term, a level of indirection, but overall, it's a nerdy technology so we can solve some problems in the networking overall, specifically to the data center. Day. I, I think it's worth clarifying something that, that I'm sure I've, I've heard of, and I'm sure people are probably wondering if they're new to this technology, is that VLANs, virtual LANs, they've been around a long time. Is the idea of a VXLAN to get rid of VLANs and replace them, or does it more augment that technology? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, it's often seen as replacing it, but I would say it's more augmenting it or extending it in that case. As I guess your your server today has a network card, and that network card still speaks in Ethernet. So um, at that point, you, you probably look more at the augmentation rather than replacement overall. Okay, so let's if we want to get a little more technical about what VXLAN is, I think you mentioned encapsulation. Can you dig in on what we're actually encapsulating and what that looks like? Yeah, very, very good point. In VXLAN, the main focus is, as as previously was being said, uh, extending the VLAN, uh, the VLAN namespace, which, which is the VLAN IDs we have today. But what we do is we take an Ethernet frame, and in proper terms, uh, push a header on top of it, or I just say slap some something on top of it to make it routable over an IP network. So you get bridging or layer two forwarding over a layer three network, and we call that encapsulations, overlays, or uh, slapping a header on top of something. 
Oh, okay. So on an Ethernet network, endpoints would discover each other through flooding, saying, hey, I need to know the Ethernet address, the MAC address of a remote endpoint I'm trying to send data to, and that broadcast gets sent out, and everybody in that broadcast domain sees it, and the right person goes, oh, that's me, and then responds. But if you've encapsulated that, it sounds like all of that goes away. No, it, it won't go entirely away. Um, let, let me go one step back because you said Ethernet and, and flooding and broadcast and all of these kind of stuff. Yes, that all works very nicely. But remember, you have that tree protocol. I can't remember what it is. I've used it for a long time. <laughs> is it spanning tree or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and if you don't have that, that, that flood packet comes back to you, right? And then it bites you and, and you have something which is called loop. But yeah, going back in VXLAN, you still keep the flood and learn semantics, at least in the vanilla version of what VXLAN does. Your, your host sends a broadcast, is it an ARP or whatever kind of other broadcast packets, uh, a packet uh, frame to be correct, a VXLAN tunnel endpoint or what we call a VTAP in that case takes that packet and encapsulates it and based on what type of sorry i always come with packet it's a frame and takes that frame encapsulates that frame and sends it to its neighboring tunnel endpoints or vtaps in that case it follows the same semantics except you don't have a spanning tree running in vxlan because it's a non-looped topology it's an always uh, single or point to cloud if you want to in modern terms so but the semantic state the same now in ethernet networks your mac address is always seen behind a physical interface or a port channel or an ether channel whatever you want to call it there in vxlan a mac address is seen behind one of these vtaps and a vtap has an ip address so the basic semantics of forewarning stay the same in in its essence but we're adding a tunnel level in the middle which is represented with ips as, as next top, if you may. The thing that helped me start to understand this when I first learned of VXLAN was thinking of Knight Rider and, you know, Kit, the, the, the Trans Am, it goes into the truck and then the truck drives it around and then Kit blasts out of the back of it to go fight crime. <laughs> so, like, that's the encapsulation layer. You know, think of the normal, the normal frame as the Knight Rider car and then the truck is like the VXLAN just kind of shipping the car around so it can go, you know, do the turbo jets in the ejector seat. Yeah, that's very good. Very good representation. And the highway is the wire, I guess, right? Fair enough. Down to the sunset. All right, Lucas. So we talked a bit about flood and learn and how uh, that works at a, at least at a very high level in VX. I know we didn't get all the details, multicast groups and so on. There are other ways that endpoints discover one another when they're in a VXLAN environment, right? There's flood and learn is kind of the was the first iteration, but then there are other control plane methods too. Yeah, that's correct. So flood and learn is basically the wagon wheel you have, right? And these days we have more sophisticated tires and rubber on top of it where we can make things roll smoother in, in these networks. So flood and learn is basically uh, the first incarnation of the control plane in VXLAN, similar as Ethernet was. And then we, we explored additional ways. Some of them are more prominently known. Uh, one of them is uh, what we call the OESDB. Open vSwitch uh, database protocol. The other one is a BGP-based approach, which is called eVPN or Ethernet VPN in these cases. And both help to discover endpoints and improve reachability and, and optimize communication. What they don't do, and uh, I always try to, to reiterate that point, 
that doesn't mean that you don't have any BUM traffic and BUM stands for broadcast on a unicast or multicast, but they're there to minimize these kind of approaches as much as we can to get away from the classic semantics. And again, for people that aren't haven't spent much time in the weeds and networking, when we talk about endpoints finding each other, what we're talking about is I need to talk to a MAC address that's in my domain on my LAN, so to speak, but there's this VN, VXLAN network separating me. I need to figure out where that MAC address is. And I can't just put a broadcast out on the wire anymore and, and discover that. I need some protocol that's going to tell me that information. So VXLAN offers that original flood and learn process, which we didn't get into in too much detail, but was that first iteration. You mentioned OVSDB, which would be roughly stated a database that's got that information of MAC addresses in it saying, hey, if you're trying to get to this MAC address, use this VTAP. Is that about right? That's 100% correct, Ethan. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it does. We're talking there about a mode of or a semantic of local discovery. So every endpoint, host, VM, physical server, which is behind uh, the excellent tunnel endpoint, is locally learned with the classic approach how Ethernet or, or some other maze are learning MAC addresses. And then we take this MAC address and distribute it in the network. So every remote switch or every remote VTAP knows about them rather than first uh, going through that flood and learn semantics. That's correct. And then EVPN is similar, except it's using BGP border gateway protocol to exchange information about if, if people think of BGP and just assume, oh, it's a routing protocol. So all it exchanges information about is IP routes. You can actually exchange all kinds of information using BGP as your protocol if there's been a spec written for it. And EVPN allows you to push data around about MAC addresses through BGP. That's correct. EVPN got uh, it's basically an address family in BGP, um, where there is an NLRI network layer reachability information, or what we call sometimes a template, where we're now able to store MAC addresses in rather than just IP addresses as known from routing protocols uh, for a long time. And then one last detail of information here. VXLAN has there, – there's a, 16 million of them potentially because you've got this identifier. Can you talk about that identifier, what it is that makes every VXLAN unique? You mean to make it capital X, meaning extensible? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In VLAN, we have a – or in traditional Ethernet network, we have a namespace which is called the VLAN ID. I think everyone used that uh, these days, either on, on server, NICs, or in, in switches. In VXLAN, you have this additional header, which we put on top of a, of a classic Ethernet frame. And in that header, there is a field, which is the um, VXLAN network identifier field, which allows us to store something like uh, 24 bits. So it allows me to store in that encapsulation field, in that VNI field, a gross of 60 million identifiers, which allows me to be more flexible to address segments. Uh, segments is, is nothing else than a, a layer two domain or a layer three domain, whatever you want to use it for, to address these segments and give you more versatility across your network. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. I, I definitely agree with your earlier statement about VXLAN being an extension, just because it's quite interesting how the technology is constructed so that kind of normal IP communication and, and sort of MAC address communication can occur and that VXLAN kind of assists with that in a transparent way. So it's kind of really like the Tinder of MAC address sharing. You know, you're, which one do I want? Swipe right on this MAC address, figure it out, and then bring it back home. This is one of the was one of the things which are not too very well known, Chris. 
VXLAN is in its base is a layer two overlay or, or a layer two encapsulation. So we always have a Mac header in there. So in that case, yes, the, the extensibility of a VLAN is, is probably the best thing to, to de- annotate that. A little bit earlier, we are talking control planes for VXLAN. And I know, I think Ethan mentioned EVPN. I think it's risen up as a popular control plane for VXLAN. Is that now the normal, you know, kind of air quotes, normal way to do VXLAN <laughs> environments? Or is it kind of a one-off? Oh, kind of a one-off. It's crazy. I, I'm involved with EVPN for quite some years now, and um, I think it has a lot of merits in there. It's very flexible in what you can do. I think it's currently the way how to build Ethernet-based VPNs and use it as a control plane. I don't think it's a one-off when I look at the standards track or the work which has been done in the standards bodies and also the adoption in the industry is pretty wide. If this would be a one-off, a lot of people would have wasted a lot of time on implementing these functionality. So how, how far are we from EVPN being like the standard? Like if you walked in, oh, I'm standing up a new VXLAN environment, that oh, then obviously you're using BGP EVPN. Yeah, there is some controversy in the industry on this one. Um, let's just keep it controversy and see my per- give my personal view. Routing protocols per se, uh, and especially... BGP has always been there in order to address a lot of scalability issues. I mean, we, we try to build large routing domains and service provider networks. That's where BGP comes out. We, we try to be convergence improvements, scale improvements, and so on and so forth, using BGP as, as a transport for Mac and IPN information in, in scalable data center and TCI. I think that's the way where the industry directs to and where where we think will be the most scalable and, and flexible way there as with adding EVPN, we have the option not only to transport the Mac part, but also have the traditional VPN capabilities, uh, IP VPN capabilities to transport IP information. So you get not only the layer two bridging technology, we use the encapsulation to also transport IP information for routing. We give you the multi-tenancy aspects and all of these kind of things. So you you basically get in your data center not only a bridging VPN technology with this overlay, you also get a routing technology there implicit, and uh, I think that that makes the story very, very whole. On the OSDB side, as per the current schemas, it's mostly Mac reachability being there. Uh, there's some tweaks being made on some of the vendors to use certain fields and certain extensions in there, which, uh, by the best of my knowledge, have not been publicly documented. But there are ways to do certain things. I'm not aware of extensible routing VPN information being present there these days. So I guess we can say VXLAN control plane flavors. You have EVPN with layer 2, layer 3. You have OVSDB as a layer 2 reachability information, the configuration information exchange. So with this, I guess um, the the industry has chosen, but I leave it to the people deciding on their own which choice has the better merits based on their use cases. For me, personal um, bias, as always, is EVPN the way to go. You know, having spent time with various VXLAN software stacks and deploying it when I was doing enterprise consulting. I, I just kind of like reflecting on how VXLAN itself has become a bit of a you know new normal in the data center and beyond. It used to be, ah, it's a snake, watch out, get a mongoose to kill it. But now the focus is really, you know, what's the best way to share MAC addresses? What's the best way, you know, uh, we talked about EVPN for the control plane. It's really about the nuances around deployment and control and not just, you know, the fear, uncertainty and doubt that it used to be. What about you, Ethan? 
It's very much the same kind of a thought. I just as we were going through this, and I was thinking through all the advancements that VXLAN has made over the last five plus years. I mean, it's it's a technology that the industry is committed to. It continues to advance. There are new developments. There are new IETF drafts. There is industry agreement cross vendor on how VXLAN uh, might look. There's also a lot of differences between vendors on how it might look. Like uh, Chris, you and I were chatting in the back channel about how a Cisco approach uh, or another hardware vendor approach might look very different from, say, a, a software approach driven by VMware. Um, but that's it's a committed technology you can count on. It's not going away anytime soon. All right, Lucas, I think we've got a pretty good introductory understanding of VXLAN and control planes for VXLAN. Let's dive into kind of the gear and the use cases a bit. I wanted to start off with the fact that, I mean, we know you deal with a lot of customers, and is there a typical use case or something that you want to share that that feels a little more typical from a use case perspective that customers have around VXLAN? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah, good question. Dealing with customers, it's a lot of fun. Um, we, We always learn a lot when we talk to customers as how they adopt our technology. I think when we look at the marketing in the industry, most of the main use cases that are called out are around multi-tenancy and then the extensibility of the VLAN or the VNI address space there. But in my personal experience, the most compelling advantage which VXLAN brings is it runs on top of a routed network. So we can use all the good stuff we, we learned over the years and how to build optimal routing domains and we get rid of spanning tree at least in the core network where, we, where we're running VXLAN itself. We can use all the links which are there. We can use that uh, good thing, which is called equal cost multipath, which allows us to have all links active. You guys remember the spanning tree? It was a tree with a single active path. Uh, with VXLAN, we have all active paths. I learned about spanning tree through, let's say, experimentation. Uh, <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as it, I was the server guy plugging things in until I was like, hey, let me teach you about spanning tree. Oh, you, you were the guy who took a server, created a virtual switch, and then tried to create a loop? I was just I was just curious one day, what happens if I plug in one port into another port? And this was old school. And I was like, wow, cool, the lights all light up. And then people <laughs> run in, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, that could be me. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, you don't get that anymore. We don't light up the, the links. We, we, we can't break things like that anymore. It's kind yeah. of sad. Uh, we can still break it if you if you want to, but let's keep that apart. Are you really telling me that the chief use for VXLAN is simply to migrate your data center to being fully routed? Since that gives you the ability to put that layer two domain anywhere you want it, but still have a routed layer three, that's the biggest driver you're seeing? I think routing protocols are very more scalable when we're looking at topology definition and when we're building that uh, transport network where VXLAN goes over the top. We call them underlay from, from time to time on core network or infrastructure network. I, I think that's it's a good way to keep my infrastructure, my topology, all forwarding, well-designed and avoiding some of these implicit one link is on the other one link is off kind of things through routing protocols we just have made more capabilities way more options for example to improve convergence as in these equal cost multi-path networks if a link fails we don't have to recalculate we just rehash to another link and i think that's one of the very compelling pieces there vxline over the top i mean it is a network which runs on top of the network so it has a bit of additional work which has to be done uh, in configuration for example but 
I think in the in the world of SDN and and like terminology these days, I guess you have some automation or controller in the games there. But yeah, I think the running on top of L3 has some pretty advantages there. And would you make that argument for shops that I mean they they are using VLANs, they haven't needed more than 4000 VLANs. It sounds like you're making an architecture case that doesn't really matter how many VLANs you're using necessarily you could still drive ahead and improve the stability and scalability of your data center uh, migrating to VXLAN if you're willing to take on right the the additional overhead that comes in and so on. Um, is is that fair? I mean, is there or maybe a different way to put it, uh, Lucas? Uh, are there shops that are too small or where it just wouldn't make sense to put in VXLAN? Well, we can argue that the two-switch shop might be too small, but I, I would not exclude anything. Definitely... The limitation of the VLAN space, uh, of the namespace which is present there, this could be a reason for going to VXLAN. But honestly, uh, for me, it's more the architectural approach, which brings me the advantages, multitude of advantages, just then, hey, I extend my namespace. And to come back to your, your point on what shop is the right size, if you have two switches, you probably not have really the need to do, to do a tunnel overlay or something like that there. You, you're looking more at like two switches, build some some uh, MC lag or something like this, and you, you call it a day. But at the point where maybe you have four switches, there could be some advantages abstracting your, your physical topologies from your services, meaning your VXLAN tunnel on top. That could be appealing. What about where the encapsulation is actually occurring, such as, you know, I know you can do VXLAN encapsulation in a soft switch or, or in software versus hardware. Are there pros and cons to both approaches, or do you have some suggestions when someone might actually say, okay, software makes sense in the use case, or hardware makes more sense in this other use case? I guess, where, where do we kind of make that decision? Oh, I didn't know that we have software these days. We only have hardware. Joke <laughs> <laughs> oh, <choke> by side. <laughs> you see, my bias is coming, coming apart. <laughs> coming across here. <laughs> no, so <laughs> I think there are merits in both uh, in both worlds. I think if you have a fully virtualized environment, it could be appealing to you to do something what we call a software VTAP. And me personally, and maybe also the audience could, could relate there a little bit. Uh, if I'm building the network and uh, somebody introduces an additional network over the top, who has the responsibility, who has to take care of the operation the troubleshooting and so on and so forth. So these are kind of the the questions which are which are always coming up when we're talking about software VTAPs or VTAPs originated in software in, in a host. But I mean, there there's no nobody must avoid that. I mean, there are valid pieces in there. Uh, on the other side, if you have a network, you buy the switch, and your your switch has the capability. You're easy to start with a network overlay, which is then the VTAP done in hardware on an ASIC on a chip in the switch and it gives you all the good stuff of the segregation of duty between the server team and the the network team and being clear demarcations and who operates what let's not talk about the agility of configuration that this is actually at a completely different point but it gives you the option in these network overlays meaning uh, switch originated to have bare metal to have virtual machines to have containers have basically every kind of workload being in that and more importantly, L4 to L7 services like firewalls and so on are, are very, very dominant still in the hardware world. So at that point, in any case, if you do software or hardware overlays, 
you need somewhere a gateway where you can plug in an Ethernet port and and connect something to to it or to the rest of the world. Oh, okay. So there there are definitely use cases or you know, times I would need an Ethernet switch that can be a, a VTAP, that VXLAN tunnel endpoint. When I'm shopping for an Ethernet switch that can be a VTAP, what questions should I be asking my equipment vendor? Because not all switches are equally functional as VTAPs. Yeah, that's that's a good one. So Ethernet switches today, there there's way different silicons in the industry and you cannot say it's this silicon or the other silicon, which which is only valid. There are a lot of variations. Definitely things which we should be looked at are, can you do VXLAN routing and bridging? That's definitely one thing should be asked. And then in, in that regards, um, what is the amount of recirculations you might require? Recirculations is how many times you have to go through the ASIC until you get the encapsulation or the encapsulation done. I think these are some some very important questions uh, which should be asked. If you have layer three multi-tenancy requirements, you should probably look at how many VRFs with VXLAN you would support. The VLANs are always kind of a question, how many VLANs, which are VXLAN extended, are important. So these are kind of the, the questions there which should be asked when making all of these decisions there. And sorry to say, it always depends, right? They have this stupid answer continuously. and say, what do you want to do? Oh, yeah. Is, what is the right answer? Is it this or this? Well, it depends what you want to do, right? So um, ask the right question, definitely. I, I don't think that the amount of line rate ports is the major case. It could be a case for you, but I, I think it's more in the in the soft spots where you're having specific use cases which need to be covered there, I said, the routing, the bridging cases, that they are there and how and what you want to do with the rest of your network to integrate it. I think these are the very important pieces. You know, the thing that stuck out to me, Chris, was that the major use case that Lucas cited is that VXLAN is for uh, making spanning tree go away. Now, I knew there's, there's all kinds of technologies over the years that have been about making spanning tree go away. But to hear that a lot of customers are using VXLAN strictly for that, so that they can build a Layer 3 network, put their Layer 2 endpoints wherever they want to, and run them across the Layer 3 network, and that's like a major driver for them to introduce VXLAN, uh, surprised me a little bit. Because so often you hear in the marketing literature, multi-tenancy, and that's like a, a, a huge thing. You're trying to keep your keep your tenants separated you know it's really important for security and micro segmentation and you know and so on so to hear this very practical use case making spanning tree go away so that you get the most efficiency out of your data center transport was was really great i like that i love the real world chris what about you well first i like that your marketing message voice is like abe lincoln that's uh, two thumbs up there but but also yes, I, I sort of agree in one extent on that. You you don't need a bleeding edge, you know, or science project type of thing to think about designing and deploying around VXLAN. Ideally, if it solves your problems and can be taken advantage of by your team, add it to your toolkit, take a look at it, and something as simple as you know allowing all ports to be open and uh, actually forwarding traffic versus blocking and worrying about uh, disabling links doing the span of tree. That that in itself is just a fine use case to start tackling. Lucas, so to finish off this show, I, I want to answer a question for a Datanauts listener that came up back in Datanauts episode 100, which was an, an AMA that uh, that Chris and I did. The question was roughly this. There are hosts in a VXLAN-based data center, and they communicate with each other in and out of VXLAN tunnels. 
Okay, that's straightforward enough. But sometimes those hosts need to get out of the D.C. and they need to talk to the outside world. So the first question, what is the big challenge here? Why are we so worried about VXLAN in the outside world? Are we saying the rest of the world doesn't know what to do with a VXLAN encapsulated frame? Oh, there's the rest of the world? I didn't know. <laughs> I have, I have to go. go and figure that out. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very selfish in my own world and don't know that there's a rest. No, just joking. Yes, it's, it's a good point. I mean, the encapsulation has to stop somewhere and we have to normalize it then to whatever the rest of the world speaks. In the case of classic VXLAN in a sense of layer two bridging, I mean, a VLAN comes in, a VLAN goes out, and that's how you connect to the external connect to the external world or the rest of the world. But I guess your question is a little bit more going into, I'm not only bridging, I also have some some subnets and I want to rerouting beyond. Am I, am I hitting the point? Well, right, exactly. I mean, there's, there's that, as you said, the normalization of the communication. So I think one point worth making here is that when I'm in my data center and I've got my VXLAN networking, that is a self-contained thing that is isolated that the rest of the world knows nothing about, just like the rest of the world doesn't know anything about my VLAN tagging scheme. If I'm using private IP address space, it doesn't know anything about that. And so to communicate with, well, generally speaking, it doesn't know anything about that. Certainly the internet does not. I've got to, as you put it, I think was a great way to say it, normalize that data. Because if I send this to VXLAN encapsulated packet out there or a frame out there, that VXLAN packet is not going to be you know, read by the global world and someone's going to know what to do with it. They don't. That's very true. Yeah, it, it stops somewhere. So, I, I mean, I was, I was joking a little bit with you. Of course, I know where <laughs> you want to go at. <laughs> I have my server and that server should go into the internet. And what, what many people forget, there are a couple of steps in between which we should and must look at. And the first thing is, how do I get from my layer two segment into a routed world? And there is normally a, a need for a first hop gateway in these cases. And that's exactly where I said you previously in the previous part around VXLAN routing. You need to have a way to do inter-subnet routing or external routing when coming or going into VXLAN segments or between VXLAN segments. That's I think that's an important piece there. In the traditional flood and learn approach, you would use something what we call centralized gateway, what we know for a long time. You use your HSRP, VRP, GLBP, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so you come from your host, you're going layer two to your first switch. Your first switch encapsulates in VXLAN. You hit your first top gateway. Uh, that gateway has some routing information. And at that point, of course, we decapsulate and send it to the rest of the world in a classic uh, routed way. That's what we do in a very centralized, in a very traditional model kind of way, as a centralized gateway. When we look at how things are being done, mostly in EVPN, we try to have less centralized points. We try to do more distributed points. So there, your VTAP, your VXLAN tunnel encapsulator at the same time would also do the first top gateway. That means you would start routing to the rest of the world as close as possible to where your host sits. This gives you some advantages in hairpinning, uh, reducing hairpinning, and other kind of these uh, things. You go to your gateway, and your your internet gateway, yes, it has to be a VXLAN tunnel endpoint, or your gateway where you normalize, this has to be some kind of uh, encapsulator. And from there on, it's, it's very magic what we do. Um, we're doing just traditional routing. No headers. I, I think you make a good point, because I, I feel like 
people, and myself included, tend to forget that we're not doing VLANs and whatnot when we leave the data center. You know, it's all routed at that point, and that world is, is kind of left behind. And so you shouldn't be afraid of VXLAN. It doesn't really add anything from a what's new perspective. Like, we always have to shed off all that Layer 2 stuff to get it out to the public internet anyways, like in most cases. So I, I think knowing that, let's let's really focus in on that edge gateway you know, the, the thing, the piece of hardware software that gets the data packets mm-hmm. out of the VXLAN world and into the WAN. Let's go deeper in there as to what it is, what it's doing, and where it kind of lives within the data center. Oh, it's that magic box, right? That, that edge gateway. So Call now, 1-800-NEW-SWITCH. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. So we, we just reinvented that. Uh, so guys, uh, there's only one VXLAN edge gateway on this world. And <laughs> you can uh, mail order it by me. No, just kidding. Let, let's go one step back, right? So first of all, you have always the need for a tunnel uh, decapsulator, right? So when you when you come from your your host, uh, you have some encapsulated VXLAN thingy going over your network. At a given point, you have to stop. And if if that stopping point, that termination point, that if you want to call it edge gateway at that point, the first thing which has to happen is a decapsulation, right? Now, is this a switch or is it a router? That's just based on the capability. Is it a server? That's based if your server has the throughput you're requiring to decapsulate it for your whole network to leaving uh, that whole network to the rest of the world. In the cases of switches, um, you have a lot of 10 gig, 100 gigs and whatever ports. uh, So you can do routing, bridging, as well as decapsulation, encapsulation on the same node. You a physical interface, you do that routing, peering, and so on. So it could be a switch, which is your edge gateway. It could be a router, which has the decapsulation capability and the routing capability beyond, or it could also be two devices. Let's say the switch does the decapsulation and the router just does the routing. But, but it tends to be a what we would think of as a network device of some kind. You're saying a switch or a router. It's probably not like you know, a server running some kind of a stack. Well, that's that's again an opinion, a very opinionated question. Ethan. So it could be it could be a server in certain VXLAN deployments. When we are talking about host overlays or software overlays, there is very often a server in the game, as uh, the communication between these software overlays could have some pro- proprietary touch. But in the case of yes, it it could be a server. It could run a certain software on top of it, a certain function which does the VXLAN decapsulation, and then the routing protocols beyond that, it's absolutely valid. Just keep in mind, you're you're having a whole network behind that, uh, a multitude yeah. of tunnels, hosts, and so on, right? And, th- and that is not the typical. I've, in most of the reference architectures that I've reviewed for this kind of a setup, it's not a server that's sitting out there, unless it's, again, off to the side doing something special, maybe. Well, I, I, think, you're, I think you're thinking a, a different topology. I think you're thinking, as, as an edge gateway, I would agree. It's, it's not just a server that's sitting like, I'm a server, I decapsulate stuff. No, it's... It's more of the inner piece of it. It's, you know, it's kind of a, a cluster of, of hosts that are running hypervisors. That would be where it might be the decap and in-cap layer for the internal part, at least yeah, from my so experience. It, it is, right? I mean, the, the gateway in, in its sense has to transform from something to somewhere else. And uh, on, on one line, when we look at external connectivity, it is the VXLAN you want to take care on. And then that that's the data center internal view or the VXLAN internal view. And in the outside world is is normally either a classic bridging uh, Ethernet or it's a classic routing approach. So that that function of decapsulating the traffic of that, of that edge gateway 
has to be uh, supplemented by by something which can do packet forwarding in the sense of routing when we're talking about the internet and yeah potentially also some firewalling or network address translation and we we can go and argue if a server is the right or the not not the right thing I, I definitely there are some merits uh, in using some hardware forwarding there um, on the switching side or on the routing side uh, even on the firewall side potentially. Uh, to be used, but there are definitely, um, to your point before, reference architectures. There are definitely uh, architectures which are implying a software-only approach, and in the software-only approach, that also means that the gateway would have to provide some software capability to to talk to the rest of the world. Definitely, in in the sense of uh, what we're working on for for many years with VXLAN in the hardware side and also VXLAN eVPN, there is a way of having the software VTAPs speaking VXLAN eVPN to a hardware gateway, VXLAN eVPN gateway there. And then you have that's best of both worlds kind of coming together. You can get your rest of the network or your whole network going through the rest of the network through that hardware accelerated kind of, of gateway mode. But just to say there there are software approaches which which can be chosen. But from network vendors, you know, where their their object or typical approach, I guess, would be to put more network hardware out there. I see a couple of, of switches that are in the leaf <laughs> layer of the of what was probably a leaf spine architecture <laughs> that act as the edge gate. Where there's two of them, you get redundancy and ECMP across, and and so on. And then they do that. Uh, as you were saying, something that's got to do a decap and a normalization to get that packet out of the VXLAN environment and into the rest of the world. Correct. You want to talk about Verflight and Intrae as option A? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Let's 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 move that on to the other side. We can do a nerdy talk on that one uh, somewhere else. But yes, it's it always it's that normalization, that removal of header, and then it's the traditional uh, routing bridging approach. I think predominantly it's the it's the routing approach when leaving the data center. So does that edge gateway then do – I mean, we can. We, you've said it does NCAP and DCAP of VXLAN packets. That makes sense. It would have to decap them to get them out of the VXLAN domain and then re-encap them as the packets are on the way back in. I would assume then it, it – does it map VXLANs to VLANs as well to push it into the uh, what, uh, classic architecture, I guess you could say? Yeah, it could, right? The edge gateway in its in its pure essence is a VTAP, right? And if the VTAP is, is a leaf, it's, it's just a little bit differently configured on – we use sometimes this terminology of user network interface versus network to network interface, UNI, NNI. Let's, let's keep them beside, otherwise we're getting too nerdy. But the interface uh, in the sense of a switch where you connect a host to, it's pretty much the same interface and has the same configuration as would you connect an external – router to it if that external router provides you your first hop gateway, meaning you go bridged all the way through. There is not much difference there. The real difference comes in when your VTAP, your edge gateway at the same time also uses integrated routing function, single tenant, multi-tenant, and you need to bring these different tenants, these different VRFs, uh, VRFs, or, or different routing contexts out of, of your switch there. Then we need to have a little bit of more more logic, uh, different configuration as there is no no direct MAC address behind or no direct host behind uh, as we would see it from a host to host. In normal terminology, we call that the border. It's the border of your network. So your edge mm-hmm. gateway equals border. It's kind of that normalization point and you can place that. There are some concepts of having border leaves, meaning um, it's pretty much looking like a leaf and it's the same layer as a leaf when we look at these class leaf spine topologies. There's also a concept of the border spine, which is uh, not my 
my major preference there, but it exists as well, where we say the spine is also an exit or can become the exit point for the traffic. I haven't seen too many architectures for that just because you don't want the spine to have to know that much. Yeah, that's that's a big discussion. And I mean, we, we had some some pieces on what's the right switch to choose uh, previously and and their TCAM or how much max and IPsec and store become very, very relevant to the spine. And as you said, in a, in a traditional uh, architecture, the spine would not even know anything of that. So there, there are some scalability implications, uh, which has to be considered when choosing the right box. But the important box is the leaf or the border leaf, uh, the guy who, who has all the host Mac IP network information to do that external connectivity. I think that's, that's the best place to do it. Does that edge gateway NAT because I could see that being an important part of the normalization process in certain scenarios. Wait, I thought Nat was evil. You should never do it. <laughs> Isn't that the, is, it is this a trick question? Oh, should we do 426 Nat or something like this? <sighs> Double Nat or robust? Ah, exactly. Now, um, yes, you could. Let me give you my opinion, and I, I leave it to the audience to to make that call, then, if if that edge gateway should Nat itself or, or not. Um, so multi-tenancy center could happen that, doesn't imply that you must have overlapping address space, but you could have overlapping address space uh, between these different routing domains, different routing contexts, meaning the VRFs. In this case, it could be beneficial to have somewhere NAT, but does it need to be the edge gateway itself or could it be uh, an off the edge gateway kind of function you choose? Normally, when I look at switches, um, I I would not primarily put everything in one basket and uh, centralize every function I have on a single on a single switch, just because I can, uh, I would normally try to have a certain uh, chain of decisions and translations being made. I would prefer the off-gateway piece uh, if NAT is really required. Uh, if you your data center is connected to an internal network, you potentially don't need NAT, but then at a later stage when you hit the internet, you might need NAT. Um, so there's kind of the rational behind of, of my personal preference there. Have you spent any time where you bridge between VXLAN and VLAN? I remember hitting that a few times as different segments and older pieces of equipment within the network were brought into a VXLAN, but we didn't want to do it all in one shot. We wanted to kind of slowly migrate pieces over. Is that still a use case that you run into? Yeah, we run into that. I mean, migration is is eminent, right? It's, it's a very important part. Uh, we, we always forget that there are a lot of brownfield networks. It's not always the greenfield where you can run in with your truckload of gear and you say, hey, rip and replace. Uh, there's always a smooth migration expected. And that's exactly where it comes into that you have a VXLAN network or a VXLAN-based network. You do the bridging and the routing maybe in that VXLAN-based network. Uh, and then you connect traditional layer two domain, southbound, eastbound, westbound, northbound, wherever you want to call it, to that network. And there's some consideration to be made as your traditional network probably runs spanning tree today. VXLAN is spanning tree less itself, but you might need some integration in order to ensure that you don't create loops. So yeah, there's a lot of considerations to to be made there, a lot of things to be thought about, but you definitely can do that. One important thing in these kind of migration discussion is VXLAN is a LAN, a local area network. A local area network is represented by a bridge and a bridge consumes BPDUs and BPDU is the, the essence of the spanning tree protocol. So don't expect that VXLAN uh, transport BPDUs, it consumes BPDUs and uh, there are some crazy things you could do and loop creation if you if you don't keep that in mind. I think that's important to keep in mind. Lucas, a, a closing question for people that have perhaps 
complex network environments. Are there other methods or things you would recommend they Google and uh, that they can research and go deeper to figure out how VXLAN might best fit into their more complicated network? Maybe they're running MPLS already. Maybe they're a service provider. You know, these sorts of concerns. Yes, the answer is always no. No, the answer is, of course, yes. There, there's a lot of material out there. We did documentation. I think we had even some discussion at a given point in a more public space around the general gateway modes we have available within specifically Cisco. I mean, we have VXLAN to MPLS L3 VPN. We have VXLAN to VPLS. We have VXLAN to LISP. VXLAN to just a traditional kind of uh, VRF light uh, don't hit me, guys. I know there is a difference between VR flight and intray as option A. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of approaches. And yes, we, we, we can do that That one end cap to other. Uh, very dominant these days is, is a project which I got involved a couple of years back is actually a VXLAN to VXLAN interdomain gateway, which we released somewhere recently, more recently, which allows us to separate VXLAN domains from each other and to do routing with a with a VXLAN tunnel over a van or over a, a data center interconnect link or something like that. So there, there's a, a magnitude of different gateways and we're working on more gateway function from NCAP to NCAP to make it easy for adoption and integration. Lucas, I think that really brings us to the end of this VXLAN discussion, which has been great because it's been detailed with a lot of information, but yet not so much that you can't get a hold of all of it. So this is like a, a great place to stop. How can people follow you? Do you blog or are you social on Twitter? Anything like that you'd like to share with people? Uh, I, I never try to blog on my own. I, I try to uh, take other people's name and, and push it out there. Uh, just kidding. Uh, we, we did some blogs in various uh, forums. Uh, Cisco Learning is one place where we try to put some blogs out. Uh, Cisco.com is some, mm-hmm. some blog space where we did. But I'm, I'm not a too frequent blogger. I'm trying to do more a little bit of uh, if there is need to clarify myth in the industry and, and put some new stuff out there or some new consideration there. That's when we blog. Twitter, um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a Twitter account. It's at CCIE21921. That's not a four-digit CCIE. Sorry about that. I was late <laughs> to the game. I keep it current, so I still recertify. I still be and have fun with that kind of part and then yeah linkedin uh you can find me and um at some discussion occasions cisco live i'm normally around uh, mpls sdn world congress is another place where evpn is dominant where i'm around so the sometimes at the ietf come by when you see me Ooh, okay. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. Thank you again, Lucas. This has been a fabulous show. You can reach Ethan, that would be me, at EC Banks on Twitter. Read my articles at PacketPushers.net. You can be at one with the wall on Twitter, at Chris Wall, or by commuting deeply with his blog at wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, cannonball into the deep end of the pool, that is PacketPushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots conversing about conferences, containers, certifications, cloud, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink your data centers scale infinitely, and your cables be cleanly managed.